listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. I'm doing something today we've never done. Uh, from two perspectives. One, we're doing something we've never done. Like the style that we're about to do, we've never done. And also, I'm doing something that I've refused to tell you what it is. Yeah, I'm in the dark here uh, completely. Yeah. Which I'm cool with. I have no problem being put on the spot. I will tell you that. Uh, but I feel like over the years, we've discussed like ideas for episodes at nausea. So, well, that's where I, I can't really I can't get to in my own brain. So I'm curious. I don't know how good of an idea it is, but we're going to make it serviceable. And if that doesn't I guess we are. set the hook on everyone listening, <laughs> then I don't know what's going to. <laughs> well, we I'm have. intrigued. <laughs> I've been receiving, as I'm sure you have, questions from listeners and athletes over the years. And there have been some trends. There's always trends that are cyclical. But there are a few questions that are not, are not cyclical that people just consistently ask. Mm. And they're kind of bigger. You can give a surface-level answer on a Q&A, and we have for some of these, but they're bigger than that to the point where I would consider we need to have someone talk about this for an extended period. But you and I both don't really operate in the way of, let's bring in a guest to talk about these two or three things very often. Because the scripted questions make an interview difficult for the style that we do, right? It just doesn't work that well for our style. We work best on the fringes, like in the weeds. If we have 10 questions, like with Corinna the first time, we had 56 questions, we got to zero. And it was a great conversation. So it's a waste of someone to bring mm -hmm. them on sometimes just to ask them a few specific questions when they have much more interesting things about them that I'd rather talk to them about. I'm tracking so far. Okay. And I will say a peek behind the curtains. Uh, we, I think the last time I took a note or prepared for an episode thoroughly was in the first six months of this podcast. Otherwise yeah. we find it better to l go with it as it comes. Of course we research our guests and such and have an idea, but we're very informal about it. And so you're right. We don't, we don't one off an expert in a small subject, uh, field for that very reason. Yeah. It's too distracting and too conflicting to have a goal of where to get and a route for how to get there. But all these fantastic dynamic individuals who can bring us places that we didn't know about and are better than the original place we wanted to go to. And it became too jarring early on to try to force it. And maybe great professionals at that can do that professionally. And it's great. But we're going to stick to what we're good at, except for today. So what I thought is the four most commonly occurring theme questions that I would bring someone on to ask them about. I'm going to do that today mm -hmm. with you because we've done a lot of well, your... you best be answering these questions as well. I, I don't know. Here, I don't Bracken. want you to, I don't want to paint us into a corner here, but we've done many of the tangential conversations with ourselves. People know about many of our interesting or not interesting aspects of our life, our running, our philosophy of coaching, having you on here, we could talk about something random every time. And so it's not a waste of an interview with you to stick to a topic. Whereas if I brought someone on that I wanted to talk to about this thing, it could be a waste of their time to only limit them to that. So I want to do it today, an actual, almost formal interview 
with you as my guest. And of course I'll contribute. So you want to waste my time, just nobody else's time. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't want now you to I'm think it's because you don't matter. Yeah, no, that's endearing. <laughs> it's because we've taken your time. Listen. We have the All About You episodes and all that stuff. Not many people will know this, but there is a song called Waste by a, a band called Fish. I used to listen to them quite a bit in college. You're a fish? And we waste the time with the people we... We waste the time with the people we love and care about. Come waste your time with me, Brack, and let's do it together. Let's waste our time together with the audience. However, I do want to set a guardrail for this. Probably three of the most uncomfortable, I would say worst, interviews I've ever been a part of on the end of me being the interviewee were ones where I showed up to the podcast or the interview and there was a visible piece of paper and someone would look down, read Mm -hmm. a question off, wait for my answer. And regardless of what I said, move on to number two. That was, it felt very useless. It's like, I, no matter what I tell you here, it doesn't change the course of this. So I think what a guest tells you should redirect the conversation 10 out of 10 times. 10 out of there 10. should be no agenda, right? It is a flowing river of conversation. What the guest says should spawn new and insightful questions and ideas. I agree. And those type of interviews, like they're trying to get to one place, right? And it's... Very disheartening. I don't think those podcasts last very long. I could be wrong. but I I would assume so. So anyway, with that in mind, I only have four questions. And where they take us, they take us. But I will be hitting all four today. What was that cracking open? So I'm the subject expert. You are the Uh, subject expert. Well, we just talked about this. Uh, Bracken and I both managed to get sick here the last day or two. It's not a Coke. No, I'm, I'm dying. I canceled my clients this afternoon. And it's caffeine. But uh, so I got unlimited time. I got unlimited time. Yeah, it's a, it's a Celsius, guys. I'm so sorry. It's, it's not okay, but I, I feel okay. pressure. I feel like I need to get my neurons firing. I don't know, artificial sweetener. You you can't be happy about that. I don't but know. Regardless, I, regardless. I, going off the rails to start with, as we should, staying true to form. I once heard nutritional advice from Matt Novakovich that makes no nutritional sense and so much logical sense that I haphazardly apply it wherever I want. And he said, tongue in cheek, I eat exclusively processed foods to take the load away from my system having to process it. I'm going to live way longer and be way more efficient because I don't put strain on my system. It's already processed. It just comes in, delivers the nutrients, and it's gone. Nothing has to do any amount of work. And I thought... I like that. Processed food gets a lot of bad rap, but we're just cutting out the middleman. <laughs> we're t- we're giving our our system easy on the body. Yeah, an easy day. <clears throat> That's not what Celsius is, though. In artificial sweeteners, um, I'm actually I really try to limit. But today's a day. Today's a day that there's no limit. The governor is off. And I will no say, there's some interest. This just came up actually. Um, there is a documentary on Netflix called like the blue zones. You familiar with the blue zones, like people mm-hmm. who live to a hundred, the most people who live to a hundred, these certain areas in the world. Okay. And it got me thinking and then conversing about it. And then also, um, doing my own research. And I worry for us. I worry for guys like you and me, you know, we're fit, but are we healthy? Right. Right. First of all, most of these blue zone areas, people, the way they live is their movement, right? They're not like going out for runs or they're not lifting weights necessarily, but the way they live is movement, right? That is key number one. And then key number two is it seems like the more we eat calorically, the more demand we put on our system, it's like 
our body, because we run so much, we eat more. We have to metabolize, process, and kick through. Like we're wearing out our gears earlier, Mm -hmm. including our GI tract, including everything else. And so although we are very high-level capable of performance athletes, the one main theme is that lower caloric diet over extended duration extends life. And I think about mm-hmm. eating 3,500 plus calories a day for the last three decades. And I think like, oh, shoot, like people who overeat good or bad, people who stress their system, good or bad food tend to not make it as long. Those who eat like birds tend to live notably longer. So, and I don't do either of the things I exercise all the time and I eat a million calories a day. These people don't exercise. They just move in life and they eat very light, nutrient-dense foods that aren't calorically dense. And I just find that correlation very interesting. You don't see the best distance runners in the world live to 90. They all peace out at like 75. You'd think they'd live forever, but they don't. It's a very interesting topic and one I've thought about in a way a lot as well. In in analogy time, I equate it to the first time our district when we were teaching got iPads. And someone in in the meeting asked the tech guy, should we charge this when it's half full? Should we treat it like a, a car gas tank? Should we just top it off every time we use mm. it? Should we let it run down? I've heard if you run it all the way through, it extends battery life. I've heard it also kills it. He said, these things are rated for charging cycles, not amount of time spent charging. So this thing, let's say it's got 300 charge cycles to it. Use that as you will. After that, we're going to have to get new ones. And there's some correlation with that, some, some research that's been done on the human body. For example... It's one of the places where intermittent fasting started was there was some research on rodents that the less they ate, the longer they lived. Frequency, not quantity. And the more they ate, the more basically cycles Mm. they ran through. They had a number of cycles, not a number of years. It was just like bodily process cycles. And that was one of the foundations of intermittent fasting is that we can extend our life if we run through our charge cycles slower. And my response to all of this is that I'm living for quality, not quantity. When your iPad is dead after 300 cycles, whether that's three years or 10 years, it's dead. But if it's dead after three years, it means you use that thing a lot and it gave you a lot of enjoyment. And that's how I want to look at it. I don't want to live the longest life possible because that limits how I live my life. I don't want to live an outrageously destructive life. But if you drive the car hard, it's going to wear out earlier. But you don't ever regret one second of that enjoyment of driving it hard. You know, I talked to my dad the other day. He didn't call very often. I call him. That's how we work. Me and Pete don't catch up very much. I wish we did, but we just don't. He was one of 10 kids. His dad never called him. He forgets to call us. I got to call him. That's the point I'm getting at. And I was like, Dad, how are you doing, man? What's going on? Last time I saw him was my wedding, which was, oh, what was that? It's the last time I saw him. Anyways, what are the chances? Anyways, my dad ran his whole life. See, we're already getting tangential, uh, but whatever. My dad ran his whole life. He has, uh, his shoulder is going to basically be replaced. He can't run anymore because of his hips. His lower back's a mess, but dude, did that guy burn hot like he ran all through his 30s and 40s he still cycles 60 miles every other day he is a farm boy who carries everything still at 69 years old it's like if the dresser needs to be moved like he doesn't need to find help he'll find a way to move that dresser through the house like with his brute force right he's one of those guys and then he and 
but he's like, tell me, Kirk, it's going to happen to you. It's going to happen to you. I had to stop running in my 50s, and I wore out now, and my knees and hips are shot. And he's like, I don't know how you're doing what you're doing. And I'm like, shit, Dad, you're probably right. Like, if you go with the principle of eat less to live longer, and I do believe in it. I think there's some yeah. truth to taxing the system. Then you think, like, running is so healthy for you, but is it? Like, it beats the ever-living shit out of us structurally. So let's just put 4,000 calories in my body a day. Let's pound the shit out of it so I can barely walk in 20 years. And let's peace out when I'm like 68 to 72, but I burned hot and fast. That's what you're telling me. No. I, That's what like you're saying. Everything, what are you saying? I'm saying I'm going to drive the car hard, <laughs> but I'm going to perform all the regularly scheduled maintenance. I'm going to put premium in it rather than unleaded. Eventually. Oh, whatever. You premium in it. I'm talking Mr. Cold about pizza for breakfast. the theory, the analogy, not my actual. But no, I don't want to burn bright and, and, and burn out quick. But I want to go when my mind and body can't serve me anymore. I don't want an extra eight years of being an invalid. You know, you watch too many people you care about no longer be able to be of use to themselves. So right. obviously longevity is fantastic because things like grandchildren, great-grandchildren can enter the equation. But I don't want to live too long past Lisa. Pro I mean, preferably, we just go on the same day. And she's a runner, and she runs bigger mileage than I do. So mm. I got to balance that out with intensity. I can arrange that. Yeah. Okay. Go on. If you want. Yeah, I'm, no, I'm just saying, if we ever need to arrange that situation, let me know. No, I can. I'm for hire. Okay. It's good to know. So I guess mm. I, I want to. I want to balance it. I don't want to live forever. I want to live well as long as I can and take steps along the way. But I'm not going to eat 1,500 calories a day to extend my life because that means I can't burn 3,000 calories a day. And burning 3,000 keeps me happy. Yeah. So question yeah, number one. I, uh, I think to live your longest, think to live your longest, you have life hobbies that include moving your body. You strength train three times a week. You do very little structured exercise other than your strength training. And you eat a limited caloric but high nutrient dense diet. I think that's the key. I don't think running 50 miles a week and shoving all the food in the world down your throat and still working a job and having kids and maintaining a social life. I don't think that's the way to do it. We're going to find out eventually here. Yeah. But let's go to question number one. I could you go down take, this rabbit hole for a long time. We got to take the least amount of wear and tear possible while being active. You have to live in moderation a, in all ways. You can't do any extreme. Nothing can be so intense or so sedentary that it has a negative. It's like the people who are extreme mileage um, maximizers with their gas mileage. Mm. There's people who are getting 50, 60, 80 miles per gallon because they never accelerate if they don't have to. And they never brake if they don't have to. And they overinflate their tire. They don't enjoy driving. So you have to live Those are in the, the people I swear at on the road. Yeah. Those are the people that I dislike strongly. Extreme moderation would be the way to do it. And I would rather be moderately extreme. How do we get on this? No way of knowing, Kirk. But this leads us seamlessly rewind the into tape. All right. the interview portion of our of our podcast. There is no okay. rhyme or reason to the order here because they are unrelated topics for the most part. These are just the four most commonly occurring questions that I don't have a good answer for in like 10 words or eight sentences or less. We cool with that? Okay. And where did you – well, yeah, but like how did you – like, where did these come from? Like, where have you been storing these? Or did you go back and look at a bunch of questions and, and deduct down to these? Or where did these come from? 
pouring back over screenshots, uh, thinking of uh, conversations I have with athletes. I keep little notes in, uh, in my, my, my coaching mm. folder of th- common themes so that hopefully I can develop ways to address them ahead of time in the future. But there are some things that are unaddressable, as you'll see <clears throat> here. So these are some of this is anecdotal. Some of this there's hard evidence, and I have 15 screenshots of a version of this question that I've never really just gave a fantastic mm. answer to. So it's on you now. I'm going All to right. start with something that is very unspecific and something that you have talked about in the past. We've done almost a whole episode about this, but not exactly. And that is the concept of motivation. How do I get motivated is something we've talked about before. And you have a fantastic quote about it that I assume you're going to lead with, with sentence number one of your answer. And what I want to focus on is not the difference between motivation and what you believe is the true source of sustainability, but what is your mindset? What are your actual cues, strategies, physical and mental actions for when you have no motivation? I don't want to focus on why motivation is the wrong task. I don't want to focus on why people are unmotivated. I want actual, actionable detail about how you, Kirk DeWind, who is one of the most dedicated, consistent athletes I know, constantly makes it work in a schedule that's not always conducive to making it work because you have your days just like the rest of us. So first of all, Mm -hmm. give us your sage advice on motivation, and then let's talk actual nuts and bolts of your experience getting out the door when you don't want to? It's a great, it's a great question. It's a, it's a great question with, there isn't one right answer, but, um, I love that question. I love that question because it's infused in every day life for all of us. It's infused in my job every day, dealing with clients and athletes. And so, um, I think, don't you, wouldn't you agree that every day you probably come across the word motivation when dealing with one of your athletes or one of your, yeah. like, I didn't have the motivation or I didn't. Mm-hmm. I can't think um, the of quote a, you're single, referring to, a single person on this planet who would not run into this roadblock at some point. No matter how mundane and course. scripted your job is, you have to get there each day, which starts with waking up. Every single person will be affected by this. Yeah, it's a great time. I mean, you're right. We could make an episode out of it, or we could give them one sentence and move on. It's a tricky one, but the quote you're referring to, and I know I've said it, said it a number of times uh, over the years anyways, is people believe that they are going to start with the motivation and then the doing will follow. Like they're going to wake up out of bed one day and they're going to be like, oh my God, I'm so motivated today. Today's the day I start my diet and I start training for my marathon. And I think it's going to be bestowed upon them. And those people are blind. They're the blind leading the blind, themselves leading themselves. It doesn't start with the motivation. It is not bestowed upon you as a gift. And if it is, it's very fleeting. You start with the doing, whether you want to do it or not. And by doing things consistently, showing up when you want to and when you don't, that creates motivation. So people have this wrong. They think it starts with the motivation and then the doing follows, but it couldn't be further from the truth. You start with the doing and then the motivation is earned by the doing. So if you're not feeling motivated, I feel no sympathy for you. You're not going to get any sort of coddling from me because you haven't earned that motivation. You're not feeling motivated. For some reason, you have not earned that motivation and you need to do a harder look at what you've been spending your time doing. So that would be my first statement to the motivation topic is if you're not motivated, it's you. You've done something wrong. 
You have not showed up for yourself consistently enough. You have not put on your big boy or girl pants on a day-to-day basis, and you're not feeling motivated because you haven't earned it. So I'll just start with that, and you can tell me what you think. Well, I've liked it. I've liked it since day one. And I think one time you said, you don't have a motivation problem, you have a dedication problem. And I like that as well. Mm-hmm. And and people confuse motivation <clears throat> with someone motivating you, a motivational speaker. Because I think be, probably because of motivational videos and speeches, they think it's the inciting factor. We could just remove the word motivation and replace it with momentum. And now people will understand sure. where you're coming from. You don't you lack motivation because you don't have momentum. So like you and I are on the same page with yeah. that. You have to cultivate momentum. And what I want to know, you are the expert we're bringing in on this. As someone who stays with momentum, you pivot as well as anyone I know. Injury, personal life, doesn't matter. You stay with inertia. What is your Mm. physical and mental process for the days I don't want to? Because that's everyone's. We go to bed at night and we're like, all right, it starts tomorrow morning. It's happening. And I know that I'm going to wake up tired and my alarm's going to go off and I don't want to. But then when we get there the next day, all of our I don't want to wins out. So I want to know your actual process, thoughts, everything for the days where it isn't worth it and you don't want to. Well, that was actually today. I went into the gym this morning not feeling very well. Should not have gone. I woke up not feeling great. I was like, I can't cancel on my clients last minute. So I got up at 4.45, went into the gym, whatever. But I was driving home. I did a strength session at the gym, driving home, and my run must get done. In some would say I shouldn't run today, but I ran easy. Nonetheless, I was nodding off on my drive home. Probably shouldn't have even been in the car. Got home. And my thought process was once you get out the door, don't stop moving. You're not at your car door to walk into the house. Don't stop moving. You have no choice in the matter. The point is once you're moving, you're going to stay moving. You're not going to sit and look at your phone. You're not going to do anything that can allow you to stop. I literally went and changed my clothes, used the bathroom, put on my shoes, and went outside with no – it was an – it's like being on autopilot for starters – there wasn't a there was no discussion being had in my brain whether it was or was not going to happen. There was no game trying to outweigh should I push it off till after we podcast together or should I there was no there was no option. I had one option and it was to do what I intended to do. And so I think what you're really asking is like how do you curate that mindset more than anything? Because that would be the trick. Because I this decision was already made to run today well before today was made whatever my mental process is that it was like that box will be checked this is the time to check it and i don't care how tired you are i don't care that you don't want to like none of those they never have it you know i have a shield up and those things bounce right off and leave right it's just not even allowed to enter so i think like the question question is how where how do you get to that place is that correct How do you get your shield up? How do you avoid the things that are designed to fill your empty space? Because one of the most common laments I hear right now are people saying, I just need to spend less time on my phone. I wake up and then 30 minutes later, I'm still scrolling. Or I'll go on YouTube to watch a motivational – I know race videos get me going. And so I'm going to watch an 11-minute recap and the next thing I know, I'm watching 40 minutes later and I've missed my window. Or I know if I just – do this, I'll do it, but I always get sidetracked by 
Like you have, you walk through, I picture you walking through the house like a SWAT team member, a riot squad holding your, your bulletproof shield with just your, your eye, like this little bit of plexiglass in front of you that you can see through. And everything's just outside of your peripherals or they're bouncing off the shield and you're like, no matter what, this is happening. I don't want to, but I'm just in riot gear right now, getting through the crowd so that I can do this. How do you get to that point? And I, I believe there is a time to think and there is a time to do, right? Most of us get stuck in the thinking space. We waste hours and hours and gallons of emotional energy thinking through everything, planning, curating, designing. We spend very little time doing. You spend six months planning for a four-day canoe trip. Like, what the heck are you doing? So I think there's a time to think and I think there's a time to do. And I think, I think, I'm using the word think now, I don't allow myself to think until it's done. I don't allow myself to think about the task at hand until the task has completed for the day. And for me, and probably you, it's a matter of priorities. My priority, I know that I will feel better and be a better human and all that crap we've spewed at you over years if I get my workout done. So there's no negotiating, there's no conversation, there's no thinking for me about that workout in an emotional sense until it's over. Then I can analyze, think, and then make my next move for the next day. But like the word thinking, like I think being in your own head is the absolute worst place to be. We can convince ourselves of anything. I'm like a Neanderthal barbaric idiot when it comes to my emotional attachment to my workout until it's over. Then it begins. So for me, there is no such thing as thinking. I don't know how else to describe it, but the thinking only happens after it's over. I've thought about yeah. the workout the day before or the week before. I already know it's going to happen. So I don't allow myself to play any sort of game with the workout in my head until it's over. It doesn't matter how I feel. My feelings are, are null and void. And so I'm, not, I'm still not answering your question, but that's how I look at the workout for the day. And even if I push it off until after work, there is no thought or emotional attachment to what's going to happen until after it happens. I, I don't know if I'm helpful there. Oh, it but is. thinking happens it, after it's done, not before. You nailed it. It's the thinking emotionally. I, I'm mm -hmm. about to say something that is an instant red flag <laughs> when I hear other people say it. But I consider myself more okay. on the intellectual side of things. I'm not an intellectual However, if they sorted the human race by non-thinkers to overthinkers, I'm certainly past the midline towards the thinking side. I, I would consider mm -hmm. myself intellectually engaged in most areas of my life. And I've tried to remain very objective whenever possible. But as soon as the emotional content seeps in, the component of emotion seeps into my, my quote-unquote intellectual side, you understand that you're compromised. And so there are areas of our life where we are just, and I say this phrase all the time, we are not to be trusted. Simple example. How many times are you in a friend group and someone's like, you guys just need to take my phone away from me after two drinks. I'm not allowed to have my phone after, mm -hmm. sure. after I get tipsy. Or don't let me call so-and-so after 11 p.m. We all know we are not to be trusted in certain situations, even though we are trustworthy the rest of the time, if we get into a compromised situation, we are not to be trusted. And I believe just like we shouldn't be trusted with our car keys when we're drunk or our ex's phone number when we are tipsy, we do not belong being trusted with the decision 
to make a fitness-based call, a workout-based decision, a nutrition-based decision right before the workout starts. When you wake up, you have not earned the right to be emotionally competent about your workout yet. You can't be an intellectual. You can't be a thinker because you are too smart for your own good. You will think of all these glorious, beautiful, bulletproof excuses for why it is smarter not to do this workout now. And, and same thing at the end of the day, like at 9 a.m., all right, I'm getting off work and I'm going right to the track. And at noon, you're eating lunch, like, all right, this is my pre-workout fuel. I'm getting off work and going right to the track. And at 2.15, you're like, man, I'm starting to get tired. And at 2.45, you're thinking, I don't know if it's smart. And by 3.15, you're like, I'm going to go home and I'm going to get another meal and some caffeine in me and I'm going to absolutely do it at 7 p.m. And 7 p.m. rolls around, you're like, I cannot believe I'm even more tired now than I was at 3 it is not even smart because by the time I get warmed mm -hmm. up and ready to go, it's 8 o'clock and I get done at 10. And look, at I can't get 10, 8 hours of sleep anymore. That's not even intelligent. Science says I need 8 hours to even perform at work tomorrow and it doesn't happen. We're not to be trusted with those situations. Yeah. Yeah, that was a really good. Uh, that was a good spiel there. Um, I was, I was just really like head nodding, like so much my neck hurts. Like, yeah, yeah. I thought you were uh, listening to fish. <laughs> the decision is made. <laughs> no, I don't listen to fish much these days. Uh, I don't know that they necessarily. Head the decision is made. They're they're more like head, like, sort of mm -hmm. eyes droopy, just sort of like wavering. I yeah. Raise my eyebrows um, from time to time and sweat. Listen, Trey Anastasio, he's got it going on. Um, where was I? The decision is made before you go to bed the day prior. It really is. Whatever decision has been made when you go to sleep is what then is detached from when you wake up in the morning. Can you reason with a two-year-old? <laughs> Most well. would say no. You cannot. Not well. You and your relationship to your workout is like trying to reason with a two-year-old. It's going to get you nowhere. It serves you no good. It's a waste of energy and time. Right? Am I going to reason with a two-year-old why you need to go to bed right now and it's the last thing they want to do and they're kicking and screaming and crying and barely able to articulate themselves? That's not how it works. And that is you trying to talk or reason or justify your way out of your workout or push it back or modify or do whatever it is. You cannot be reasoned with in this. So don't try to reason with yourself in regards to this. It's a waste of resources completely. A decision was made. The day prior, what? I like that. What? I haven't heard that version of that before, but I like it. We're, we're a toddler in that it's... moment because what do you have to eventually do with a toddler? You can bribe them. You can reason with them. And at the end of the day, you have to stomp your foot, raise your voice and say, go do it. I said do it. <laughs> and then they get teary-eyed and then That's they walk exactly away right. and they do it and then it's over. <laughs> at some point, you have to draw the line and remind <laughs> them, I'm the adult. You are two years old go take care of it. Yeah. I mean, you would know better than I would. You have three children. I have none. So you deal, you've dealt with that more than I have. But uh, I don't know. I think the keys are emotional detachment from the task at hand and the decision was made prior to the sun coming up that day whatsoever, right? And yeah. and there's no, you don't, yeah. The I don't know. The SWAT team with the shield analogy is like, I'm going in with a task at hand no matter how I feel. We've had this discussion. I know it might sound a little redundant to some of our regular listeners, but how do you achieve that mindset? Uh, I think we should pivot to that point. Like, how do you yeah. get to that place? Which is what um, listeners it doesn't happen who struggle overnight, with this so are asking right now. I get it. I make the decision yeah. the night before. 
I make the decision every night and every morning I hit snooze or every day I get off work and it doesn't change. And it is emotional to me. I'm trying to lose weight and feel better about myself. And I feel terrible about myself right. when I don't do it. It is emotional. How many analogies can I try to use? All of them. Use my inspiration. It's like a thousand. It's like a thousand piece puzzle, right? You start with the corners and the edges and one piece at a time, making the decision one day at a time to do the things I just talked about, to check the box no matter what, emotionally separate from your workout. And eventually you add one piece after another piece after another piece. I'm talking one day after another day after another day, one decision to the next decision to the next decision. None of these are really decisions at all because there should be no decision being made, right? There's no decision to be made. Mm -hmm. It's going to get done. And pretty soon after a thousand days, you step back and you have this thousand piece puzzle all put together. And guess what? That puzzle is now together for perpetuity. It's already been put together. That is you now. You are the puzzle in full picture. And so I believe that this can't be just curated. You can't just like, like today is the day. Like it still needs to be earned. So you need to practice it. You need to put one puzzle piece in every day, right? And pretty soon the puzzle is complete. Of course, you're never symbolically going to know what day that is. But once it's put together, it is there moving forward. But you have to establish what that puzzle looks like and what that day-to-day -day looks like, the big picture. And that just takes a thousand cuts, a thousand pieces, whatever you want to look at it as. And then eventually it is you. It is the puzzle. I see the whole picture. There's not – here it is now. Somehow I've arrived and I couldn't see it in the moment because it's a thousand pieces or it's a mm -hmm. thousand decisions or days. But now it's together and complete. And that's what it is. That's who I am now. That is the picture, right? And so yeah. I wish there was like a – I wish well, there was a – a, a more poignant, direct, short answer to that, but I, I think don't think is. there is. Let's pick up from there. I think because I like this. Let's. Yeah. I like this analogy. Let's. Okay. Let's roll this out. Let's play this out because, just like this, at some point in the puzzle, you gain momentum. You start to see the picture take shape, and now it's exciting to find the next blue shape rather than like, oh, there's a million blues. You start to realize where the pieces go, and you get the sense of the puzzle, how it's been cut, how the design works. You, you build momentum along the way. So mm -hmm. I like this. But step, if step number one is just start with a piece. It doesn't even matter what piece, but it kind of does. Like it's best to start with an edge and ideally you start with a corner mm -hmm. or you just start putting flats together. Let's identify the flats and the edges of this process because, yeah, we can't script it all. But once you start with one or two, the next logical step takes place. So what is the corner piece? What are the flat edges that allow you to get past the emotional attachment and the I don't want to and I'm too tired and this isn't reasonable. Let's identify those pieces. Mm. What, good. Step one, good direction what's there. the first puzzle piece you reach for if you are a I can't get out of bed and work out early? First thing you reach for. Well, I think that aside, I think the edge pieces are maybe practicing with the box is going to be checked whether it happens at 6 a.m. or to 11 30 p.m or it's broken into two between 9 a.m and 3 p.m like the box i think needing to be checked even if you're not perfect yet like mm -hmm. you still emotionally like it's 11 30 at night i've made excuses up to this point but that box needs to be checked i think those are the edge pieces just figuring okay. out a way to check that box even if you play the mind games with yourself push it back or you hit snooze and now you're stuck squeezing it in after dinner whatever it is I think the edge pieces are checking the box and proving to yourself you can do it, even without maybe more of the pieces in place. That's what I would say first. Okay. 
if you can skip that step and go right to like, okay, I set my alarm an hour and a half earlier, I get up, I'm working out by 6am, of course, all of those things. But maybe the corners, the corner pieces of the whole thing starting with would be like, just check, the, make sure you can check the box each day. Okay. Prove to yourself that that can happen first. What do you think? Well, I almost feel the opposite, but I don't know if it's correct or not. I oftentimes will tell someone, okay. you need to prove to yourself and to a lesser extent, me, that you care enough to even start. Like if you can't get up at 5 a.m. on day number one, you don't care enough about this goal. Like whatever the reason is for doing this, if you can't get up one time knowing that the only door currently shut to you is waking up one hour earlier, if you can't do that thing on day one at the time you said you would 12 hours earlier, then you really don't want it. So prove to me that you want it and say, this is my time and I'm doing it. Because my rationale is that if you skip it then, you're definitely skipping it at 1130. Like the 1130 card, when mm -hmm. this is my only window because I've missed the others, that's an advanced, that's an intermediate to advanced card to play. I think that if you can't wake up early, you don't want it bad enough. And so then you have to trick yourself. I'm not saying it's right. That's my personal I mean, belief I on it. Like prove to me, do this one thing, which is rub the sleep out of your eyes and stand I up. I can't argue with that logic. I can't argue with your logic even one little bit, 100%. I think you could look at it at, as both ways. I think the larger question, we could just get so freaking like philosophical or existential or whatever the heck you want to call it with this but like like do people do people then you have to question how bad do you want it do you really want it and what do you really are you doing this because you know no yeah. different are you not like you ask the question like if you can't get up at 5 a.m do you want it bad enough most days i don't even want it i don't want it i don't give a right. shit but I do it because that's what I do. And know what happens is then again, two weeks later, I want it. But I I need to yeah. grease the groove is the phrase you say to meet it halfway. So that whole term like, do you want it bad enough is almost irrelevant because that's going to come and go. Correct. So like, I, like we it gets look at muddled. Them and know, do you understand what I'm you're saying? You're going to want it. And you, you're not to be trusted now. So yes. take it for two weeks, then you're going to want it. But what I want to know is if I can't stand yes. up out of bed, how do you stand up out of bed? Like, for example, do I set five straight alarms on my watch and five on my phone and five in the kitchen that are going to be loud? And I know if I don't get there, they're going off one minute after my alarm goes off here. If I don't get there, it's waking the house. Do I set them in, in, in on every room and floor of my house? Like, do I have to set so – is that an option? Is that what you have to do day one, knowing I have to visit eight different rooms turning off the snooze in order to earn my way back into bed, which at that point, usually you're past the worst of it. The worst is the first 60 seconds of waking up. After that, you're usually fine if you're moving. Like, how, how pedantic, how basic do we have to get until we can be trusted? I'm probably a bad one to answer this. I'm a bad one to answer this because – Growing up as a kid, in my father's eyes, if you weren't early, you were late. Showing up on time meant I was still late, and it was like, you're late, and it was a discussion. And the same thing went from back. That would be a habit that was instilled in me before I had I had any consciousness towards it, right, in a sense. And so I don't know. I haven't been the one who hit the snooze button ever, right, and then eventually found my way to not do that anymore. So I don't know – at first hand, I can speak to that. Hmm. Can you? 100%. That's me. Okay. Well, tell me. 
I'm a night owl by nature. I do not like mornings. I feel almost like I'm ill. I feel almost ill when I wake up each morning. It's like I have an actual allergy to the morning wake-up process. It is physically uncomfortable, and it's just this overriding flashing alarm in my brain saying, you need to go back to sleep. That's the way that I'm wired. But I can get over that if I give myself two in a row. That's all it takes anymore. Early on when I was in high school, it took two weeks. I would need to be able to do something for two two to four weeks to de- develop the habit. But like greasing the groove over the years, I think it takes me two days in a row. But day one is – day one and two are absolutely the worst. And if I survive that, then I'm back in my groove because then I remember the thing that I already knew, which is it's bad for a minute. Stumble into the bathroom, chug some water, brush my teeth, go to the bathroom, and walk downstairs. And now life's fine. And then I end up enjoying the process. It's a very satisfying feeling to me to be done with a piece of my day before other people are awake. Feels like you're doing something covert. It's exciting. But I am absolutely the person that needs to gamify getting out of bed. Yeah. See, I go back and forth with people like me, people like you, taking the easy way out by saying mornings are the answer, which I wholeheartedly believe they, they are. They are most but of the time. I have some of my most successful athletes are after work, worker outers. They mm-hmm. train after work and that they haven't missed a day in months. Uh, so I go back and forth with like, are we given the cheap answer or is that the answer? I do believe it is the answer. It's not the only answer, but it's right. It's like picking C in a multiple. It's right most of the time. So I just wanted to want to address that briefly that I think we have to acknowledge the fact that I don't want to cheapen the conversation by going right to mornings because there are other options, right? There are other options. But... I could not agree with you more. There are other options. Could not agree with you more. I get mad, actually angry, when people glorify the morning grind. You have the Mark Wahlbergs of the world who wake up allegedly at 2.30 or 3 in the morning to start and they get all this stuff done before everyone else. But they're asleep by 7 p.m. or something crazy. It's like you're not doing anything special. You're just – you've tricked your biological clock. (laughs) Your circadian rhythm has just Mm -hmm. been – you're just living in a different time zone than everyone else. You're not doing anything special. What's special is getting up at four to work out and having to do things at night. And so I don't like when it gets overly glorified. But the simplest way to shortcut all of our human issues, which is schedules going to crap and emotions coming into play and life handing us lemons, is to get it done before the day gets started. The least amount of crap can wind up in your lap when no one else is awake. And so it's oftentimes, like if you had to pick one time slot throughout your day where you would have the most uninterrupted 60 to 90 minutes, it's going to be first thing in the morning for most people. It's not that it's best, it's just simplest. Get it up, get it done, you don't have to worry. So much can go wrong every compounding minute after waking up that the sooner you get to it, I think just the more likely it is to be your cleanest chunk of time. But I'm a nat- naturally, I'm a night worker outer. I have a way higher occurrence of great workouts when it's after the sun going down than prior to that. I love it. I just think it's a qualified position to seek, which is I think you have to be able to get up early in order to work out late. I think if you can't do one, you probably will avoid the other one. Now, again, there are exceptions to everything, but usually 
If you can't do the hardest one, you're going to find a way to blank on the me- the medium one or the easy one. I agree with that. In addition to the m- morning conversation, I think underneath it all, for me anyways, is the understanding of what it feels like, like a true connection to how I feel after the box has been checked or mm-hmm. when I have skirted around checking the box. The understanding that I will, it will set my day up better, or I will feel like the rest of my day is open after this box has been checked, or whatever it is. Like the punishment for me would be not feeling my best about the day because I didn't do my workout or my training. And the reward, even though I don't want to do my workout today, I did not want to run today. God, it's the last thing I wanted to do. But the reward is a slightly more clear mind to record this podcast and the fact that that is off my plate. Now it frees my mind up for thinking the rest of the day. And I don't know how else to put it, but the fear of feeling like a failure is heavy. The weight of not doing something and knowing I could have been better is heavy. And it's way more weighty than just sucking it up and doing it and then not having to feel the burden of that weight the rest of the day at all. For me, it's it's a non-thought. But I have experienced the guilt or the shame or the you're a piece of shit because you skipped your workout today feeling. Not often, but I've been there. I've had those moments. And I just hate how that feels. I hate how that feels more than putting my shoes on and getting out the door when I don't feel well feels. And I think that may be as much of a motivator for me as anything. It's just knowing the difference in how I feel as a person. And that actually is my guiding light, even when I don't want to do something. I don't know how it sounds simple, but that's the truth. So I think that's a big factor as well. And that goes along with getting up early, even though I don't want to, even though my alarm sucks, even though that first three minutes is the worst, even though I walk to the coffee maker like a zombie and question like, Mm -hmm. what am I doing? It's not going to be light for three hours still. It all comes down to just like foresight. And foresight is always positive if you check the box. And it's generally negative if you don't. And so I think it's a combination of all of that. We're not going to solve this today, just so you know. It's so not like I, we can try to dance around it as much as we can. Right. If you could solve it. But it's a lot of that too, what I just mentioned. Yeah. Well, in your right. You know, I thought about, of a million dollar idea today. Speaking of trillionaire. Well, I'm not to tangent I'm doing too much. It and I want you to tell me. Well, I, I'm afraid if I say it, somebody's going to steal the idea. Do you want to tell me off? off I air? was, I don't no, I'll just say it, and then if anybody steals it, just contact me. Uh, just do the. Right I was thing. having a hard time with my clients. We were bar, we were barbell squatting today, and people weren't getting low enough. And I was like, "You think you're at ninety degrees? You are not at parallel. Like you're an inch shy. I promise you." And the idea came up to make something called squat pants, where you have a little sensor or a, even a level in your pants that tell you when you've hit parallel or below, because we're all delusional. And it can either send a note to your headphones or you can literally, it's not as simple as this, but like look at the level on your thigh and be like, there it is. Great. Back up. Because every single woman, I had six women in my group, five of them were out of touch with what they, I said, tell me what parallel is. Where do you feel it? Mm-hmm. They were all wrong except one. I was like, I think I could come up with a pair of squat pants that would help the masses. I don't know how it would look, but I think squat it could pants be a, would be very A beneficial. little just like attachment you put over your knee calf and hamstring that it compresses and just clicks when it hits 90 click click could be anything like that yes 
it's like that game. You ever Squat see pants. someone play the game where close your eyes, I'm going to start touching at your wrist. Tell me when I'm at uh, the the crook of your arm, and you're all right. Stop. Mm-hmm. And you look down, and it's three inches away. That's what squatting is. Yep. Yeah. Yes. Anyway, squat, right. squat pants. pants. I did not mean you said something about a million dollar idea. Squat pants. If anybody steals it, just let me be in on the design. All right. Well, we've we've acknowledged we won't solve it, but I do want to wrap up with this final thought. And I forgot what it was. What were you saying right before this? Oh, emotions. Man, see, okay. that's why I, sh- I should have kept that to myself. Yeah. No, with the emotion, I think people forget the way that emotions work, which is that you feel negative emotions stronger than you feel positive emotions. But negative emotions are designed at their core as a survival experience, not even experience, as a survival tool. You're designed to feel them so intensely that you never make that mistake again. But they're not designed to last for a long time. Whereas positive emotions are never quite as intense as negative emotions, but you can feel them for a long time. Like you can be genuinely genuinely happy and get distracted from it very quickly. And then remember, oh yeah, that good thing happened. I'm happy again. But if you are genuinely depressed, it is nearly impossible to snap you out of that or distract you for even a few moments. But we're not intended by nature to stay in those experiences for a long time. Like back in the farthest time away, humans had so many life or death issues that depression probably wasn't much of a thing. The easier we've made our lives, the more likely we are to be depressed because we have less decisions that just involve, will I live through the day? So because of that, that concept of if I skip this, I know I go to bed upset with myself. I'm going to be either ashamed depressed, guilty, sad, or a cocktail of all of it. But if I do this workout, I at least avoid that bad feeling that's going to permeate my entire day. And I can go to bed satisfied. Even if I have a crappy day, I have this thing that I did that. But that day in, day out skipping of the workout guarantees that you sit in a stronger emotion than than you want to be sitting in. Negative emotions should not be experienced every single day to that extent, but you're pushing that negative button every time you refuse to do the thing you intended to do that day. And the earlier you can get it done, the less chance you have to screw that up. And then the more hours you have to sit in happiness rather than an intense self-loathing. What do you think about the the non-self-loather? The one who's truly apathetic... Like I should be running because it's good for me and I should put this 5K on the calendar because I, I'm supposed to. And they really like are just happy to go home from work and game, for example. But like yeah. they are doing it because they should or they've been told to. Like is there any workaround? I, I don't know. I don't really have an answer. I'm not pre- setting myself up here to look good. I don't have an answer. But like is it just – does this whole conversation not apply to like the apathetic person? I think kind of. I think your range of emotions is predetermined by your biology. And it is like the nature-nurture thing. I think after you're a parent, you really believe that the strongest influence is nature. Like how can Lisa and I create three kids Mm. in the same way that all come out incredibly different? And we parent them very similarly and we get three totally different responses out of it. You really start to believe in nature. But you see the power of nurture in terms of Mm -hmm. guiding it. Same thing as with your emotional depth. The more you are a loather, the more likely you are to also be an extreme passionate lover. The more you are angry, the more capacity you have for joy. It's the same skill set coming out sideways. And so I think the people that really, really can't stand themselves and really hate working out 
have the propensity to be the most passionate exercisers or trainers you've ever met in your life. But yeah, the apathetic people are like, hey, I'm happy-go-lucky about this. I don't need it. I don't care. Uh, I think the answer to them might – maybe it is the same answer to everyone. I think you have to find a group experience. You got to find joy in it. Mm. They have to turn it into, oh, yeah, I kind of do enjoy yep. doing this. But I mean the easiest way out of all of this, <laughs> or, I mean just cutting to it, is a workout partner. As soon as you're letting someone else down, why yeah. are we so hesitant to let other people down when we will just trample ourselves? Like the shortcut is, hey, you're picking me up at 6 a.m. every morning. I don't want to go through the embarrassment of you waiting mm -hmm. in my driveway honking your horn and I'm not getting up. And I have to walk out in my robe and say, oh, sorry, I think it's not smart to work out today. That's the quick fix until you can build into structure yourself. If that gets you 400 pieces into your puzzle, then do it. Yep. That's the reason why I have a job, at least for my personal training clients. <laughs> right. It's knowing that I'm sitting there waiting for them. Yep. Yep. All right. Well... I don't know. Maybe there's some clarity there. Maybe one aha statement or not. I don't know. But I did my best, I think. I'm sure I'll think of something after we move on, and then I'll I'll wish I had said it. But Good thing uh, is we're not going Here we anymore. are. We can revisit. I don't think All so. Right. What, how many episodes are we in? What are we at? 380? 364, like maybe? 365? Okay. All right. 360 more than Matt B. Davis thought we'd make it. That's right. All right, we're going to pivot hard. By the way, Matt B. Davis, I saw you were wearing our Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday shirt in your last ORM video that was on Instagram yesterday. So thank you for that. He still reps that shirt once in a while. I love that. Very few things bring me more joy than seeing our shirt in public. Could not agree more. All right, let's pivot to something we can actually talk specifics about. It is still a theoretical, but we have much more hard fact and data on this. Uh, this is probably directed more at you anyway, so I'm glad that I'm interviewing you here today. But the question, there are multiple versions of this question, but basically I've had a blank setback. I've continued to cross train and do the best I can, or I just had the setback. I intend to do all this rehab and cross training protocol. How long will it take when I can if I stay in shape, when I finally start running again until I feel fit again? Feel running fit again. Feel running fit. So like, oh, I think I'm fit enough to go do something in a race. From the moment I start running again, when my injury is gone or gone-ish, as long as I maintain, we're, we're assuming that you do everything under the sun to maintain fitness through cross training. When you start up day one, let's say that you've missed at least four to six weeks. Let's just say six weeks. That's kind of like the standard four to six weeks to return to sport after most like medium severe injuries. And then it gets worse after that. So you've missed at least six weeks. You've worked hard. Day one, I start running. About how long have you found it takes to get to the point where you, I think I should go race? I'm, I'm feeling kind of fit. It's a great question. Let's uh, just have some assumptions here then. Yes. Uh, the assumption one, which you stated, is that the athlete has cross-trained with purpose. They put in their aerobic time, work different energy systems, have stayed on their stuff for the six, let's call it two months. Why don't we just get two months, right? So they stayed on it. The other assumption is that the return to running has been able to progress. So maybe yes. they ran five miles week one, eight miles week two, 12 miles week three. They're able to progress, but you're not going from injured to 60 miles a week in one week. So there's a ramp up phase that all of you should follow no matter the injury as preventative. So let's just, let's just go with those two assumptions. Your return to injury has been from injury has been good and mm -hmm. you have to start at low mileage and you have to work your way back up. 
Well, at low mileage, you are still supplementing with cross training for your volume. You don't just stop Correct. with 10 hours of cross training a week and go down to one hour of running now and then not fill the gaps. So that's all assumed, right? Can we just, mm -hmm. that way we're set up? Yep. Absolutely. I agree on all fronts. I think in nine weeks, I think in nine weeks, you can start to scratch the surface of your raceability. Nine weeks. Okay. I think in nine weeks, you're not an idiot depending on what you're, you know, like a marathon, not so much, but let's say an hour or less. I think in nine weeks, you can justify going out and racing, probably feeling pretty good about it. You're not going to be near your potential, but you're not going to be on another planet. So I think nine weeks, nine weeks. What do you think? The number in my head is seven in terms of my okay. personal experience, seven weeks of consistent run training. And I start to start looking for races. I start to get itchy for some competition. I would consider myself, again, if we had to rank everyone on the planet from non-responder to responder, I'd be on the responder side. So if I consider seven to pretty consistently be reliable for me, I think nine for the average person would make sense and probably three to five for the elite people out there. You see people coming back from extensive injuries in three to five weeks make an Olympic team. It's doable. So if I say seven, you say nine, mm -hmm. should we say our range is seven to 11? Give plus, plus two on each side. I just think it's going to take you six to eight weeks to ramp up to where you're even remotely happy and proud with your, of your time on feet. If you're mm -hmm. doing it right, smart, methodically, you're going to start getting that biomechanical efficiency back the first few weeks. And it's going to exponentially start to increase after week six. And just about the time you get the wild hair, you're like, all right, I'm feeling a little smooth. I'm starting to hit paces I haven't hit yet. I just feel like with the ramp up phase, assuming that we do it smart, I think you could probably pull it off at the six to seven week mark, probably, but I don't think you'd know it. You'd all of a sudden show up to race and be like, oh my God, that went better than I thought. Whereas at the nine week mark, you might have some okay. confidence behind okay. it. That's what I'm getting at. I, you got I, three yeah, weeks in that, that. phase. Where you might actually have proven to yourself in a workout or two, like, hey, I'm starting to come back on my top level of fitness. So that's okay. why I say nine. And I should but I don't think you're wrong at seven. Well, I should note that I start feeling things at seven. So if race week was seven, you'd like you said, you'd start to feel it right about at the race. Where by nine, you'd have two weeks of, I yeah. think I'm here. Correct. I mean, if you look at what, that's what coaches I look at. do. It's 12 to 16 week builds to your perfect marathon. So if you get three quarters of the way there, are you probably pretty darn fit? Yep. Puts us at nine. Well, and that's a build starting with a healthy body. Like yeah, build starts now and you're starting at 90 miles a week for the marathon. Like the perfect build on a healthy perfect, body. Yeah. But most marathon plans out there are 12 to yeah. 16 weeks, regardless of pre sports This is it. This, I mean, then this is it. This is, this is the deal, right? You're cross-training through injury. Good on you. You've stayed purposeful. You've done threshold work, maybe some VO2 max work, some steady, boring, long crap, whatever it is. You've used all the training puzzle piece system work that you should. You just lose. You could weight train as much as you want, squat your butt off, do all those things. You know, But we lose our resistance to impact and we lose our efficiency because our body just isn't firing in the run motion appropriately. And you're going to have a real tough, like you may float for the first five minutes of your first run back and then the piano lands on your back because that resistance to impact just doesn't stick around and then you can't sustain. And so, so we have this ramp up phase, just like our ability to even pound concrete with like on a flat terrain or anything. It just takes a while for us to 
like people that access our aerobic engine we've kept while cross training because like our muscles, our structure gives out on us because we haven't done pounding in eight weeks. And so there's like, that is the major part of the ramp up phase. Your VO two max may not change at all from your last week of cross training to week nine of your run progression. You may have the same VO two max, the same ability to absorb and utilize oxygen, but now your legs can hold up and not break down as quick. You're striding and functioning more efficiently so you're not expending extra energy on a useless stride and you can sustain it over duration so like aerobically on paper if we took out run metrics you may be no different as far as science is concerned metabolically with your capabilities to utilize oxygen it has everything to do with re-establishing your resistance to impact and re-establishing efficiency at given strides right and so mm-hmm. so i think those are the two biggest things it has very little to do with your fitness, like your fitness. It has everything to do with your run specific fitness. And as to your testament, I've seen people pull it off and go race. Well, three weeks after taking six weeks off in college, the national championships come up. They haven't been able to run the first half of the season. You throw them into three weeks of workouts, you roll the dice and holy smoke, somehow they come right around. It's unbelievable. It can happen. Yep. I agree with you, but it's all about, again, the resistance impact and, and aerobic, uh, or biomechanical efficiency. So I'm going to say nine weeks, final answer, because seven might might put a an accelerated sense of expectations upon people. Let's say nine, and if they get there by seven, congratulations. But that way you're not expecting something quicker than it'll arrive. And I mean, really, the the correct answer is don't set a timeline. We'll see. And don't make any decisions based up. <laughs> you'll know. Right. We'll see. Let's not make any decisions. Right. And then decide once you'll know, which is very hard to do, especially if you're trying to salvage a season or you get injured mid-season and you want to f- somehow make the finale or whatever. Can but I the right answer is don't event. put a timeline on right. it. Yeah. Right. Right. But th- that aside, I think that's my answer. Yeah. All right. Well, we spent 46 minutes on question one and four minutes on question two. Look at us. No. Was that true? Is that true? I mean, plus or minus two or three minutes. Yeah. Did we not, did we not be thorough with the second one? I, now I feel like maybe we we have to like split hairs or something. We were thorough. Okay. All right. We were just closer. I thought we'd be farther apart and I thought we would need more debating to winnow it down, but we didn't. I bet you thought I would say like three weeks for it because I come back quickly. I'm not using myself as the – I come back pretty quick. Yeah, you do. I bet you thought I'd say less than you. I thought you'd extend it to six to be PC. Mm. I think I extended it from six to nine to be PC. Look at that. You're still surprising me even at this stage of our relationship. Oh, honey. All right. Well, this kind of flows into the next piece. And by kind of, I mean for us, it might as well have been a tailor-made two-part question. Opposite end of the spectrum – I'm pretty fit. I did a race that was more intense, more anaerobic than what I've been doing. Shorter, sharper, and it punched me right in the mouth. How long does it take me to sharpen Mm. up in in, in order to be able to race a shorter, highly anaerobic event the same way I can my 60-minute to three-hour races that I'm doing right now? How long do I need to sharpen up and peak for speed? I love that question. And that that happens to a lot of people. That happened to me. Mm-hmm. I ran the afternoon 25K July. Yeah, the July 1st was the afternoon 25K trail race. And July 26th, I ran a track 5K trying to break 15 minutes, which are 
a two-hour race versus a 15-minute race. So I did go through that cycle. And I will tell you, to peak, in quotes, three weeks wasn't enough. But I got pretty dang far in that three weeks. I progressed. Mm -hmm. It took me another – I actually think I hit it close to on the head for this last one. If I had the right conditions, if I were a betting man, I think I would have broke 15 minutes. If it was 15 degrees cooler, I think I would have broke 15 minutes. But point being, I think three weeks – I think if okay, if you're kicking this off with a short punchy race that slapped you in the face, yep. that's your day one already. Good for you. You just shook the system. And you're gonna go back two weeks one. later and have a better huge day one. Yeah. You're gonna go back two weeks later and be notably better. One physiological adaptation cycle, let's call it ten to fourteen days. Two weeks later, you will be better. I think three weeks we're starting to talk, and I think six weeks you could nail it. So I think two weeks at minimum, you're going to notice a big jump. Like, let's say you go out and race a 5K and are super humbled. You go out and race that same 5K two weeks later and not even do anything that different in between, and you're going to perform better. Um, But I think three weeks, you're not a fool, and six weeks, you could go full full on. I think full on peak in six weeks for something drastically shorter than what you've been ready for. Uh, What do you think? I agree. I think it's seven to 14 days to see any improvement. And that improvement is going to come off system shock and a slight increase in efficiency at what you're doing. Every single year in track and cross country, we would have our opener and one week later, we would cut a bunch of time off. And if not, it was definitely two yep. weeks later, just by getting the first bad one out of the way. Your first experience in true lactate overload, really going anaerobic, oxygen debt is not a one-to-one indication of where your fitness at that type of distance and intensity truly lies. It will always undersell your fitness, almost always, outside of a certain type of athlete. And I'll get to that in a little bit. But for most people, you just got to get that first bad one out of the way, but you reap so much improvement from that first bad one. So yeah, I, I generally say three to five weeks to do it right. But two to three is enough to make serious the funny? change. And the funny thing is, or funny, interesting thing is about that is not only will you get faster, it's going to feel so much better the next time. You'll do it faster and you'll feel better. I remember in college, always opened with a mile. And we raced the 1500 indoors. But remember my freshman year, I opened in 418. You ran a 15 indoor? And my sophomore year, I opened back when we were in college. We were 15 still. Indoor? No. Indoor. Yeah, they changed it after I left. Really? Well, you think I'm making this up? I just didn't yeah, know that was ever indoor. a thing in the U.S. indoor. Yeah. I was an All-American indoors in the 1500. Wow. Yeah. Shows what you know. Nothing. I know nothing, Jon Snow. You literally know nothing. Um, but we'd open, and I remember opening, I think, 418 freshman year, 416 sophomore year. And then two weeks later, we get our next crack at it. Typically, he'd race us in a mile. Then I'd go down and race the eight and finish with like the four by four the week after. And then week three, he'd go let us hammer our main event again. And I went from 418 to like 412. And I went from like 416 to like 409 in those three weeks. And not only did I run notably faster, it was two weeks, really two weeks time difference from race to race. It felt like I was a different human using a different body. Like not only did I run nine seconds faster I or eight seconds, I felt exponentially better. And it's just interesting how not only will you be faster, but you will actually, I don't know, enjoy is not the right word, but enjoy the race much more versus just survive. And it comes around really quick if you have a base you're you're bouncing off of, right? You're Mm -hmm. transitioning from. 
we talk about this a lot. I, I use this phrase a lot. And you always go, yeah, that's exactly it. But it's like you're early into speed when you're thinking about how to run your stride the entire time. You're not even really racing or relaxing or making tactical moves because all your thought and energy has to go into trying to run that pace. Trying to, like, should I do this with my arms? Whose legs are these? It's like you put on a Kirk suit and had to run the race. Like this is familiar, but this isn't how I remember my stride feeling. Mm. And then a week or two later, you're like, okay, now I'm going to sit on this guy and I'm going to chill and relax for a little. Because suddenly it's not all your energy doesn't have to go into trying to make your body run that pace. That shocks out of the way. A little bit of efficiency can be gained really quickly. And a little bit goes a long way at speed. Yes. Um, and this is granted, you've been training for longer stuff. You already have a base that you're your you engine know, springboarding good. off of, right? Then you're... Yeah. Your end, right? Your engine is good. What matters the most? But I think if somebody gun to my head said three weeks, I would, I could get ninety eight percent of the way there. I think I, I would immediately jump into overspeed training. I know I've done enough threshold. I know I've done enough long grindy stuff. I would immediately springboard to two overspeed sessions a week, at least one overspeed session, and then one race pace session or goal race pace session. And I would cram a few of those in. I would deload the last five days going into my race. And I think I could pull off almost what I was hoping to. But six weeks would be better. Yep, I agree. And for, and we're shorter. We have a shorter turnaround on that because we are more fast twitch athletes. We are naturally a middle distance runners. On the track, outside of probably once or twice for each of us, we didn't run a race longer than about four and a half minutes <laughs> for five years in college because we weren't any, we weren't much use to people past that. So we sharpen down quickly because thresholdy long stuff strengthens our anaerobic system. Whereas a slow twitch athlete takes a little right. longer to sharpen. But even then, five weeks is enough. I think three to five weeks for most people, like you said, gets you 95 to 98% of the way there. And it would take a full season of work to get any better. And you might not ever arrive at that better while also feeling good and not being overcooked. I will say, and I'm not condoning this, but let's say you're a marathoner. And now you got done with your marathon training, marathon's canceled or something, and you go, I'm going to run a fast 5K. And you run your first fast 5K, your 5K and you're like, well, that was awful. That sucked. It hurt. And I didn't run quite as well as I wanted. If you didn't change anything about your training, you still did your same marathon sessions. You did every whatever it was you were doing. You didn't pivot, but you raced a 5K. Then two weeks later, you raced another 5K. And then two weeks after that, you raced another 5K. Mm -hmm. I would give you... 20 to 40 seconds off your 5k off of nothing else other than those big stimulus paying yeah. off and your body's recognition of the pace, the effort and understanding what's coming that you didn't change your training at all. But four weeks after your first one, I think you run exponentially faster, even just from that stimulus alone. Yes. Yeah. I think the fastest way to get better is to improve your skill or your mechanics because those improve in one session. And the shorter yes. and faster the race, the more that matters. Like if you want to improve your marathon from one month to the next, good luck. Maybe, maybe not. There's a lot of things that can happen or go wrong. Mm -hmm. You want to improve your 400 meter dash or your mile, even a 5k, spend three sessions running that pace or faster and you just get better at it. And you haven't even changed your systems really yet. Just mechanically, you're going to move better. And that's worth yep. a lot because the short, the short races, it matter, your efficiency matters so much. You just can't stay tight and tense and be fast for that long. It's too anaerobic. You can't do it. So you can get so much better with just two or three workouts. 
not even weeks, two or three workouts or mm-hmm. efforts, and you are a changed athlete at a short, fast distance. Well, you always used to hear like guys that didn't summer train or uh, somebody coming off an injury, like race yourself into shape. Mm-hmm. Well, if you have a foundation, you've been just doing long, slow miles or long, grindy stuff, you can actually just rely on your races to race yourself into close to your potential type shape mm-hmm. if you haven't frequent enough stimulus. Neither of us condone over racing, but in this instance, if you're like, I got a four week window and I'm looking to nail it, fine, jump into four, three races in the span of four weeks, all separated by two weeks. That math does work if your day one is race one. You could probably pull it off. What did Tyler Germain in there. do in college? One, one speed session. He never ran race pace. He always ran slower than race pace. They built in all the engines and they Every raced themselves into racing at the D1 level. Imagine that. You get a bunch of supremely talented, maybe head cases, maybe fragile, maybe underfueled, maybe overworked. And they just said, let's just build your engine big and let's let the races bring out your big talent again. And it worked. And it, yeah, he said it worked great for him. Yeah. Hmm. So there's your answer. I forgot. Three to five weeks, but you can make a difference in two to three efforts. Yep. All right. Last one. We've done three questions already, Kirk. How do you feel this interview is going? Uh, I think it's going well. Is this this the last question you said? It's the last one. And this is the one I was looking forward to the most and the least all at once because this is so subjective and unanswerable in a way that'll help someone else. And yet it's really fun to hear people talk about. Um, So I'm just going to state it. I struggle with going to the pain cave during races. How do you do it? How do you get yourself to the pain cave, quote unquote? There are people who just seem to love it there and live there and do well while others shy away from it. That's it. We get these from athletes all the time. Are you implying that I'm good at that? Or are you just posing... Not only in races, I believe you you are one of the rare examples of people who can be a practice All-American and an All-American. I am absolutely – my best efforts happen infrequently. I will generally overperform – generally, let's discard my recent history. Generally, across my life, I will overperform. I can show up when it counts and I can get as nasty as the the race requires me, me to be if I'm experiencing some level of success during the race. You have that ability to take yourself to where you need to go from the outside, it seems, in training and in races very consistently. Yeah. Um, God, that is a good question. I, I think the thing, and I do think I do a good job of that when I need to, regardless as to how I'm feeling, we mm-hmm. will call it. But the thing that you don't know is we talk about like in a race, burning matches. You only have so many matches to burn. Let's say you have two. Use them wisely because when they're gone, they're gone and you're bankrupt and you have no more decisions to make. <sighs> Truth be told, man, if I truly go to the well once every two weeks, maybe because I feel fit now, my metrics look good, or I'm able to pull things off that may appear that I've had to really engage mentally and sit in it, I actually purposely shy away from it if I know I'm going to need it later in the near future. I believe emotionally, I believe mentally, we need to recharge from the mental effort as much as the physical. And so, for example, with my last 5K coming up, I didn't go sit in it for the last 10 days because I knew if I would, it wouldn't be there on race day. And so I actually purposefully strike and choose not to. Maybe it doesn't appear that way, 
But you can't absolutely go to the well on a Wednesday for your quality session and think, well, that went great. I, I'm the man. I got good good interval splits and great pacing, and I own that workout. Unfortunately, you just used your F words given, and you show up on Saturday, and for some reason you can't find what you had Wednesday. And so for me, it's actually about managing when I go to the well and Mm -hmm. planning when it makes sense to and when I I back off the last third of the workout instead of – that's where it happens, the back third of a workout, of a race. That's where the decision is made. And I've had some good ones lately, and only one did I say, yep, and it was last Saturday for an hour of 60-60 intervals where I was 30 minutes in. And I was like, you have a choice to make. But when you make this decision, like this, this option has gone for a week or two now. And I made it. So it's actually, believe it or not, choosing when to use it and not. For me, I need like 10 to 14 days to do it again. I can't do it that often. So I don't know if that answers your question or not, but that's the first place my mind went. Well, it shortcuts my process. Because I thought I was going to have to bring that up because maybe I was misleading with it, but I think once every two weeks is a high occurrence of like actually going to the well. It is. Right. I didn't want you to think that you do it all the time in my eyes, but I think that you do it more consistently than a lot of people can. Um, But you're kind of, I think, starting to become known for being able to bite down and just get everything out of a race or a big Mm. workout. But I think you're right. One of the biggest secrets about the toughest people is that they don't they don't try to be tough very often. Correct. That's a very important listen skill to, what, to have. I went down this Jakobinga Britson rabbit hole on YouTube. Old videos, four years ago, three years ago. Jakobinga Britson's five K training tips. Jakob like used to do a bunch of that stuff. You know him and his brothers, whatever. And you know what came up in all his videos? Don't train too hard. <laughs> Every time he's like, don't train too hard. Don't work yeah. too hard in training. Save it for the race. Don't like. It's like if you burn your matches all the time in training, they're they're really hard to access on race day. So the decision really is like when I get to the second half of a workout, I hit the first half as intended. And then do I say, do I need to reach this back half? Is today a good day to do that? Or if not, could I run my last quarter in 64? Sure, I think I could. But I'm still going to choose to hit 67 for these last two. And I'm going to save that for the for the next day. What did Josh Kerr just say? In his world 1500 meter championships, Josh Kerr said he was right next to Jakob Ingebrigtsen in the home stretch of the semifinal. Jakob puts his hands up in the air, pumps to the crowd, and Josh Kerr just lets him go and have it, smiling, and says, I only am going to have my kick one time, and I chose not to use it in this day. Jakob can have it. And then what happened two days later in the final? Josh Kerr didn't sink in mentally or physically to get that extra second out of himself. And when it mattered, he had it. Josh Kerr managed his pain cave access in order to win the world championships. And that's just one prime example of just using it when you need to and then saving it for the next time you do. And so I think that's more of it than anything, to be honest. You don't need to be a hero every time you put your running shoes on. You need to be good. You don't need to be great, and you need to be good three out of four workouts, and you need to be gr- you need to be good five out of six workouts, and you need to be great once. And that's how I think it works. I do too. I think that that having TV has really misled people about how you get physically and mentally tough because we watch some of these fantastic runners, and some of them just look like they're being tougher than others because of how their stride or their facial expression or their demeanor is. And so it's misleading about when they're being tough. It's a huge pet peeve I have with announcers in general 
is when they apply emotional or physical characteristics to someone based upon their their visual cues. Like, oh, he is so comfortable right now. Like, you don't have an effing clue <laughs> what he's feeling like. You don't. And you hear world-class runners who become announcers talk like that. Oh, she is just so comfortable in this pace. No, you don't have any clue how comfortable they are. None whatsoever. The other thing is that movies and TV shows have taught us that when someone is going to become a savage, they're going to take incredible amounts of abuse or or pain constantly and eventually they don't feel pain anymore. But that's not the way it works. In real life, victims of abuse or torture are the most skittish, flinchy people in the world because our system eventually breaks. You can't absorb it consistently or you come to expect it everywhere and you know how bad it is can you maybe tolerate more pain than other people yeah but you shy away from all things that's the reality of life and so what's scientifically proven to be most effective is to absorb manageable amounts of pain where you have the say in when it starts and stops and then you push it at times That's the only way to unlock new levels of toughness is you have to build up your baseline levels of everything and then overreach. And then a lot of aftercare, a lot of aftercare, and then build up and then overreach and then a lot of aftercare. That's the way to unlock new levels of tolerance for anything. Were you planning on bringing this conversation to this and I just did it early? It led to this. I didn't have any plans for any of these questions today. I wanted to interview you, and then here I am bloviating. Uh, no, it's good. It's uh, God. It's and we're part at fault, right? Like we glorify the grind and being mentally tough and big workouts to change your fitness and sinking mm-hmm. your teeth into the efforts makes you badass. And that's all true, but it's also yeah. misleading the percentage of the time that you need to be that person versus the person who keeps their hand just a couple inches further away from the flame. I think in quality, we're talking quality sessions here or races, right? Not like recovery runs, like don't, don't be a hero on those. You know, eight, eight and a half RP out of 10 for my big workouts. Mm-hmm. And once in a while I go to nine and a half, right? Once in a while I go to nine and a half when it's a day where I either need it because I just need it or I know it's a good day to do it or it times well with a race I have in two weeks and it's my last big shot I'm going to shoot and it's important for me to get that stimulus mentally and physically. But think of this, like your quality sessions, if you should finish each quality session, in my opinion, saying if, if you need to, if you had to gun to your head, do this tomorrow and replicate the same times, you go... I probably could if I had to. Mm -hmm. I could do it again tomorrow if I had to. That's the indicator of of an appropriately navigated quality session for three out of four. And then every fourth or sixth, it's like, no way. I can't access that again. I need some time. But you can't be doing that every time. You cannot be doing that every time. And so I think above all else, it's that, like right there. If you think back to the last three times we've trained together. We've had two big ski hill sessions and one long semi-cut-down long run. What did I do all three times? Uh, you cut short. Yeah, I dropped I early. <laughs> you stopped before I stopped. Yeah. yeah. And I would never in any way, shape, or form consider myself a quitter. I am stubborn about finishing what I start. If anything, I'm a procrastinator. But if I start, I'm doing the thing. 
And every time I gave you some sort of comment like, I think I've got about one or two left in me and then I need to be done. And when on the mountain, you were like, well, how's it going? It's like, if I get another thousand feet, I don't think I'm going to be able to work out for a week. And on our road run, it was, I'm feeling a lot of soreness in my soleus and calf. And right now it's fine soreness. If I think I go much longer, it's going to be bad soreness. Every time there's no shame in the dropout. It's I've, I analyzed my big effort and this is a big swing. But there is certainly a bigger swing available, but at what cost? You want to spend it when you intend to spend it. And, and we, we talk about big swings. And I'm not saying this to justify why I drop. I'm, I'm showing it to say I would consider myself a mentally tough person. And I intentionally drop out of every workout Kirk and I do because he comes in with bigger fitness. And he's going to stop when it's been an appropriate effort for him. And if I go until I can't, I've actually taken more damage than him despite doing less work. So I need to stop at the appropriate time too. You know, yeah, and and in that last long run we did the morning of my wedding, you said I could go another two with you, and I could have done what you did. Like I, I could have, Gun but to my I'm head. not sure. going to. Yeah, right, because that would have taken a mental and physical um, damage that would take more time to come back from you. Like if I want to have a productive week next week, like now's the time, right? And your yes. your foresight there was big. You weren't being a pussy. You were being S-M-A-R-T, right? <laughs> That's right. So, yeah. And and think about the best coaching minds in the nation mm-hmm. uh, collegiately. The best coaching minds, the Stanfords, the Arizona, the whoever else you want to think of with a you know top-tier program. You watch the races they participate, cross-country in particular. You'll see it sometimes mm-hmm. in track. They pack run. They team run. They don't even allow their best runners to race until conference sometimes, which is their fifth race or sixth race of the year. They say, you're actually not even allowed to go all out until maybe even nationals. But conference would be the first time. It's like, okay, why are seven guys running together? They can't all be running at their potential. They're not. Their top three are working out. Maybe mm-hmm. their seventh guy is hanging on trying to you know, put his big boy pants on and join the others. But even the best coaching minds say, how many shots do you have to shoot this season? Our cross-country season is eight weeks long, and we race six times. You can't shoot aces six times. They're not available to you. So let's pack run for four of the six, and then let's man up or woman up, and then we can go to the well for two. And you see it across the board. There's not That's not coincidence. It has as much to do with physiological adaptation and peaking physically as it does with mental adaptation and being able to access it mentally. It's both of those things. Yeah, the David Goggins of the world have have confused us because people read his book. He's and a I severely read delusional man. Yeah, I think at some Inspiring, level he is. But, but I read his book to, to, to hear what everyone else is hearing, and I took a lot out of it, Kirk. I didn't enjoy him yeah. as much as I've enjoyed other authors. But I enjoyed the book a lot in it. It shed some light on some dark areas that I had kept hidden that I thought, all right, I need to put more light on those areas. However, I didn't leave that book thinking I need to be him. I left thinking his greatest strengths are his greatest weaknesses. People leave there and think I just got to harden the F up all the time. And I left thinking one of the last thing he talks about in this book is he was so broken. He took a week and he stretched for 10 to 12 hours a day. <laughs> That's the result 
of being hard all the time. Like they, there were a lot of draw. How many of his stories ended with, I had so many blisters the size of watermelons that I couldn't walk for a week. Like he's doing things that have ramifications mm-hmm. and normal people can't absorb those type of ramifications in your life, nor can the highest performing athletes. And he's never been accused of being the highest performer. He will sometimes outkick his coverage in really long events because he is so darn tough. But pure toughness will get you killed because they don't temper it with common sense. You need common sense to be truly tough. You can channel your inner David Goggins every three weeks. How's that sound? Great. And then just find this like cheap generic knockoff brand for your hard workouts in between. Yeah. <laughs> there. It, we perfect we formula. One of the I don't know if you know this about me, Kirk, but I cringe sometimes when I see people repost or talk about things we've said, and it's very rarely because I th- think we take so long to make a point that oftentimes we're very understood what we're saying, and I think I am <laughs> culprit number one for that. <laughs> Again, I'm just going to blame it on being a special ed teacher. That is a job of repetition. You say it once and then you say it five more ways and one of those ways is going to stick and I will die on the hill that that's why I am the way I am. Okay. So when I get wind long <laughs> We're all a little special bracket. Let's just say that. However, one of the things that I cringe at the most when people repost about us is your big hammer swing idea because I know how you mean it. And other people hear it wrong. And so I want to clarify it from my end first. And then I want you to react to both my perception of them, their perception of them, and your perception of my perception of me and them. Is that perfectly clear? Clear as day. Okay. You talk about big swings. And people think hero efforts. I want to talk about big swings the way I think you're talking about it in terms of golf swings. Anyone who's ever played golf knows that the harder you swing, the less control you have. And that most players probably are at their best when they swing at like a 7 out of 10. Somewhere around there. 7 to 8. And then you think of the big swingers in golf. I'm going to say John Daly, Tiger Woods. Pretty much every single player from the current generation. Big hitters off the tee. What do you think they're swinging at? Eight and a half, nine now? Like they're starting to really crank up when they swing. Like Tiger Woods sometimes would reach for it and use like a nine out of ten. We'd be like, oh my goodness, that is a big swing. That's still a nine out of ten, people. A biggest swing, what you're thinking of, are the long drive competitions. When people hear us say big swing and think hero efforts. When you got those guys up there who had like 8,000 milligrams of caffeine that day and an eight ball, and they get up there and they're charging up and torquing so hard, every vertebrae creaks just watching them. That is an all-out swing. But that's not a sustainable swing. You can't take that to the course. Maybe on one hole where you just need it, it's a par five, and you're like, hey, man, this is my only chance to get back in it. You might try one. But you know very well it could go wrong. That's a bit, That's a 10 out of 10 swing. And when we talk our big swings, we're talking Tiger Woods, John Daly swings. These are big swings, but these are like an 8.5 or a 9. Sometimes they creep in the back half to a 9.5 out of 10. But we're not doing long drive competition swings more than once a month. Yeah, and even if live a long drive competition swing would be the equivalent of a race where you squeezed every ounce of juice out of that squeeze. That's the long drive. Like and you can only basically access it in a race. Weeks. That version. <laughs> yeah. yeah. My version of that to follow your point would be 
let's say I normally do four by a mile in my repeats and I take mm-hmm. three minutes rest. Maybe my big swing now is six by a mile with two minutes rest. So I change two dynamics. I add two reps and I take less rest. And that's a huge hammer swing for me. And maybe, just maybe, I need to race that last rep to hit pace so Mm -hmm. I don't fall off a cliff. I didn't race all six. I raced the finishing rep to hit. So did I have to go at, let's say, a 10 out of 10 at some point? Yes. Maybe I did. That's the big hammer swing. And that is the, the fitness changer right there, having to reach for that sixth rep. Yep. But it's not like I start rep one and say, all right, let's go. 10 out of 10, big hammer swing. It's always about the last third of the workout. It really is. The last, you talk about using it once on a course to reach a par five, right? The, the big swing. It's like, yeah, maybe you use it to close like a damn boss in your workout that's a little bigger than you normally would have done anyways. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm talking about, really. And and you could use many different versions of it, but that's how it would look. Yep. It's not like, hey, my average best mile repeat workout was seven-minute average. I'm going to go do 645s now. Like, no, you have to race every one of them to do that. That's not exactly what we're talking about either. Right? Uh, it's confusing, yes, but I don't know. Maybe we made it more muddy or more clear. I'm not sure, but that's how I look at it. They're sub-maximal massive efforts is what we're talking about. So the way I look at it is what does it cost me sometimes? Because the misery during is hard to judge. Because a three-hour workout at a solid eight out of ten the whole time, that hurts. That gets really bad. But you don't start at a nine and go from there. So a short four by 400 meter workout trying to run 800 meter pace for four by 400 with three minutes rest, that is not a long workout. And that is miserable. So judging in comp- in race, I mean, uh, in workout misery isn't the way I do it. So I like to think about what does it cost me after. After our big long run, I felt for an hour or two, not really right. I was really knocked down for an hour or two. And then I showered. I laid uh, First, I laid in your lake for 20 minutes. And then I drank a bunch and I showered and I ate and I lounged and watched part of a movie because we had nothing going on that day. And then I got up and I enjoyed the afternoon. We drove into the city, was at your wedding, stood on my feet all day and didn't really think about it much until the end of the night. I'm like, man, my ankles and knees are tired. But that's what it cost mm. me that day. Whereas my And that was a big swing by any stretch of the imagination or no stretch of the imagination. For me, 15 miles where, what was it? 13 of them were 640s or under. That's a big swing for me. Mm -hmm. I had an hour or two where I questioned how big really was that? that? That feels like a lot. And then I was okay. But I have never gone to the well in a race or a workout two hours or longer where I was not nauseous the entire rest of my day. Every ultra I've ever ran... I have, I've gotten done and said, I will never do that again. It is not worth this feeling right mm. now because I'm miserable for eight, 10, 12, 24 hours afterwards. That is the type of swing that you can't do very often. But that to me is a hero effort, a, what would uh, Strava call it? A historic effort. Those can't happen very often because I got done not wanting to even do another one, let alone do another one in a week mm-hmm. or two. So it's what does it cost me after? If within an hour or two, I'm back to life, that was a big workout, but I'm okay. If the rest of my day is shot, that qualifies as massive swing, hero workout. Or like, let's say, 
We do a big hammer swing. You go race a two-hour trail race, and it, I mean, you are accessing every fiber of your mental and physical being the last hour of it to stay on, to hold mm -hmm. on to the win or win your age group or whatever. You get done, and it is like you can't do your cool down, and I've been here, by the way, that it, you can't even run anymore because you're so broken. You can't even shuffle at 10-minute pace, and if you do, it feels awful. Like You're like, this is bad. I'm done. Okay, great. That was what we're talking That's a big swing right mm -hmm. there. That is the that is the long drive competition swing. We say these efforts change you, and two weeks later, you're better for it. And you mm -hmm. are, and I've done it, and I've raced fantastic two weeks after an effort like that. But do you know what I did in between? Hardly anything easy running and one little short spicy thing to open things up and in 14 days i did one thing of quality and it was cut in half and it was short mm -hmm. and an easy long run that's modified in the middle and then i'm able to do it again but only because i only worked at a three out of ten for two weeks straight with one day out of five and i could charge back up and swing again but those in-betweens like that's the only way it's accessible a little more often is the fact is like it you're you're so compensating on the other end now because you worked at a 10. Now you yep. work at a two and and then you can charge back up and access it again. And so what I'm getting at is, yes, it can be done. And yes, it can be done somewhat often. And yes, you can race well multiple times in a month or a season, but you can't think you're going to go do that. Then do a fitness changing workout three days later, then try to duplicate a different fitness changing workout three days after that, and then go race three days after that again and somehow yeah. find your big golf drive swing. Going to be gone. So there's a song and dance to it all is what I'm getting at. But you need to be able to charge back up if you access that, that big 10 out of 10 effort. Yeah, 10 out of 10s change your daily existence in the days that come afterwards. 9 out of 10s don't necessarily do that. They might change volume or intensity a little bit. But 10 out of 10s change everything about your life for a few days to a few weeks. And in some of the toughest athletes that we've ever dealt with or worked with or worked against – uh, they've all come on the podcast and said the same thing. Ryan Atkins talked about it. John Albin talked about it. Emma Cook-Clark talked about it. These are people known for being really good long-distance racers, national champions, world champions, gritty. They're like, you can only have so many of those efforts per year. People look at Ryan Atkins and they're like, he does everything. Sure, but he's only truly selling his soul out on course a few times per, per year. What that number is changes per person, but you just only have so many in it. So like in summation, the fastest or not the you can't even look at it as fast. The best way to get tough is to pick your spots. Be moderately tough frequently and be really tough occasionally. Yeah. And I think that all ties into the same conversation, which you said led into this one, which is the sitting in the pain cave, yep. being able to do it glorifying all of that like it's all intertwined the working out the racing the mixing it suddenly it was there today i don't know how it was there today but it was You're like well you haven't asked your body for it to be there for three weeks so it was available you think it came out of nowhere but if you think about it no you you were slowly charging up without even realizing it it's like carb loading and so like just if you can un yeah, if you can understand the long-term flow, song, and dance of your ability to physically and mentally exert yourself, uh, I think I'm getting more dialed in on that. But yeah. uh, it's very real. It's very real. You can only swing hard once yeah. before you need to charge back up. And it's also very important to realize for everyone 
that you don't charge off the line seeking the pain cave. You charge off the line or you leave the start line wanting the pain cave to arrive as late as possible so that you can maximize your time in it. You want to start realizing in the second half of your race that, oh, this is getting real, but I have so much momentum going in the race that I want into the cave. I want in. Let's see if I can explore a little deeper. Let's see if I can get in a little deeper. The only way you have that mindset is if you didn't enter the cave too early. Because eventually you're just like, this isn't sustainable. I can't be in this cave any longer. Oftentimes it's the person who gets in the cave last stays in longest. You don't just jump into the inky blackness right off the line. If you watch the greatest long distance racers, very rarely are they pushing the pace early. But when the real racing starts and everyone's at their most miserable they find themselves working their way right up to the front and then they're attacking and they're cracking everyone. It's because they're using their matches and their pain matches right when they need to, when everyone's most vulnerable. But they spend the whole beginning of the race protecting themselves from being vulnerable. Yeah, that's exactly right. You'll see um, in like high-level track races um they talk about and like uh in recent high level races like for example Kara Goucher has been one of the announcers she does a fantastic job and then the male commentator I don't know his name uh like in the world champs that were coming up recently but anyways and they talk about just timing your kick as simple as that is or timing like he went with 250 and he ran 25 meters short and Josh Kerr was able to pass Jakob Ingebrigtsen and win for example well, we're yes, we're talking about timing your kick, but we're also talking about like exerting yourself mentally and physically to that to that like 20 meters later could have been the right decision. Yeah. Like in the example of Josh Kerr and Jakob Ingebrigtsen, Josh Kerr chose not to enter the darkest cavern of his pain cave until 175 to go. He could have earlier and it would have ended in second place. Mm -hmm. So the timing of that, you're right. We glorify like I'm going to go out of the gun like a bat out of hell and I'm just going to hold it. Well, you're not even able to access it at the end if you do it too early. So you're right. It's we. I'm glad you clarified because that's how you race your best is yeah. still managing of effort until it's time to strike. Yeah, and because you can't count your pain cave credits, you're never truly aware how close to broke you are until it arrives mm -hmm. or until you don't reach it and you finish the race like, I could have given more. And what they've shown in all their studies are that you can gamify the system and little things have huge effects on you. Something as small as flashing subliminal smiley faces at people during a pain cave workout reduce perceived exertion. If they gave them a limit, they may not reach it. If they told them they were going to break a record, they hung on for longer. And so if we knew all those things to be true, you have to fabricate that on the race course. And the only thing you can really fabricate on the race course is momentum or passing people. That's that version of it where if you and the guy next to you are running and he looks fantastic and you're like, I have like two more miles of this and I am done. And at 1.5, he accelerates. You stop trying right there and you come up a half mile short of your limit. And if at 1.5, he starts to crack, you're going to get three miles out of it. You're going to continue on longer because suddenly you had a positive reinforcement of the effort and it changed your perception of it. If at two miles, he's still there and you haven't cracked and then he starts to crack, you're going to hang on. You can be so close to pushing the bailout button. And if he pushes it instead, you're going to pull your hand back and be like, nope, I did it. I'm tougher. When you were about to bail, but you didn't because they did. 
So passing people late gives you more time in the pain cave. Gaining time on people, creating those false smiley faces and records on course are ways to stay in the pain cave longer. But again, it means you have to arrive there later. Yeah, it's very subjective because we're talking like we know, right? Like we know where our firm line in the sand is drawn with our efforts. Like It's Never. still a guessing game even for the best. Like you're like, this is a calculated risk, but I might fall 25 meters short. You know, yeah. I may fade with a mile to go, but I might not. But yeah, it's not, I'm glad you brought that up as well, because we're making it sound so clear. Like we know exactly where our tipping point (laughs) is going to lie, but you certainly don't want to play with fire too early. And just because you're not working at a 10 out of 10 from the gun doesn't mean it's not a 10 out of 10 effort if you access those back caverns to maintain your performance in the back quarter or half of a race. Like people misconstrue like i need to go balls out from the gun and it needs to hurt from minute one to minute 60 that's what they're talking about like oh my god no you couldn't be further from right we're talking about needing to go there the last 10 minutes to maintain the pace you aggressively started but calculatedly started we'll call it so yeah there's there's a little misconception there there is we've talked about it on here before but it's worth saying in some of our best races our pr races or our breakthrough races We've considered quitting halfway through them or two-thirds of the way through because we weren't sure if it was sustainable. We got to the point where it was like, I don't even know if I have it today. I don't even know if I'm having a good day. And something happened that we hung on one notch longer and suddenly we were a new runner. That happens. What we're talking about here is not – okay, so it's like you have an oxygen tank on your back and you're trying to see who can dive the deepest into a trench. It's not the person who blasts the first 100 yards down because you are chewing through your oxygen. It's the person who's asleep, descending, descending calmly through the first layers of water and getting deeper and getting deeper. And maybe you put on a burst at the end right before you run out to just kick further than anyone's ever got. And then you bail out and you're up to the surface. The harder you start, the faster you're burning through that oxygen tank. Everyone's got the same tank. You don't know exactly what's in it. But suddenly you do something and your gauge is way lower than you want it to be. You want your gauge to be as close to full as possible when the real swimming starts. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. That's all good reminders, actually. I'm sure there's a few people that need to hear some of that stuff. Well, you've been a fantastic guest today. And like my favorite type of guest, you let me talk a lot. (laughs) Isn't the good episodes the one where we talk the least? Yep. Yes. Shoot. Oh, this one's going to (laughs) suck. Sorry. (laughs) we wasted uh no we took uh you know i'd say an hour and 45 minutes of our time was addressed to four questions so i think that one and four questions that are tough to objectify but um but worth the discussion i would say i never know what to say right like if somebody sends you a quick message or something i'm just not motivated for my race coming up or i'm just dreading it or whatever and you can you can never do questions like that justice like in a message back on instagram like it it's where you even gonna start right so oh where'd i go you just disappeared off my screen hey there i am hey i'm just disappeared i'm back hey uh that was weird um i don't know whatever i was saying but so i think we're chatting this thing out for those who have asked and we have maybe not given them the lip service that they were hoping for hopefully this uh this fills those cracks well i just received an email pop up on my screen and all i saw was a foreign name and a nonsensical subject line which means it's spam but I'm going to leave with this subject line. The email was titled, you only get what you negotiate, Kirk. And I think we should all keep that in mind as we end this episode. 
Truer words haven't been spoken. <laughs> Spam serves its purpose one time in the history of forever. There it is. Yep. All right, guys, let's wrap this thing. Right, Bracken? Should we say sayonara, folks? Sayonara, folks.